listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. In studying the book First John, I'm doing this by way of remembrance, we talked the last couple of weeks a little bit about the idea of spatial disorientation, and that's the condition pilots can find themselves in when uh, they lose track of the horizon. It's an inner ear condition. And 100% of the pilots who are spatially disoriented that do not pay attention to their instrument panels or not in contact with the tower wreck their planes, 100%. Spatial disorientation. And the Lord began to speak to me about spiritual disorientation, all of it in the context of 1 John. And the thing that I've come to see is that 1 John, the, the epistle, there's the gospel of John, then there's the epistle of 1 John, and both of them written by the same person. And the epistle is like a reorientation for the church after the writing of the gospel. In other words, John goes through in 1 John and he hits topics, subjects, uh, important truths to reorient the church to the truths of the gospel. And one of the things I uh, spoke on, and I'm just couching this message this morning once again in what we've already done, is the problem when people become spiritually disoriented. When you're disoriented, either as a pilot, spatially disoriented, or spiritually disoriented, your feelings will not provide you with an accurate way to live or to fly. In the case of a pilot, he has to consult his instruments, and without fail, he has a struggle between how he thinks he's flying and what the instrument panel actually tells him. It's because this inner ear condition, he's completely upside down. People have actually, jet pilots with instruments off have actually flying, flied jets upside down and they thought they were right side up. That's how bad it can be. Well, if you have been through uh, difficult life circumstances, you can feel that same way. And there's a point where you can't trust your gut feeling. That's exactly what happens with uh, pilots who are spatially disoriented. You trust your gut feeling, 100% of the time you're going to wreck that aircraft. And so we have been emphasizing our instrument panel, and our instrument panel is the Bible. And um, when I talk about the tower, of course, the Lord can speak to you, but some people can be so disoriented, they're not sure what the Lord's saying. Anybody ever felt that way? I know I have. And so to me, the tower would speak of People who have gone through difficult situations and have found a way to come through it, and they can share with us their experiences, and they can help guide us or help uh, enlighten us, if you want to put it that way, as we're working our way through those kind of situations. So one of the things I like to do is I like to bring examples out of my own life to encourage people. And to do that, you have to be pretty vulnerable. 
but it's actually very encouraging when you realize people have gone through things and actually come through them. Not only come through them, thrived afterwards. Not only thrived afterwards, become a better person than the one that went through it. And that's, that's really, really what I want to talk about today, a little bit of that. So I called this morning this message out of 1 John face to face, and I would like for us to read together 1 John 2, 1 and 2. You are my dear children, and I write these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone sins, we continually have a forgiving Redeemer who is face to face with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so John reminds us that we continually have a forgiving Redeemer who is face-to-face with the Father. When Jesus raised from the dead for the next 40 days, he spent teaching the disciples uh, about the kingdom of God. And on the 40th day, which was 10 days before Pentecost, Pentecost 50, some of you understand what I'm saying. Some of you may not have studied all that. He ascended into heaven. And he is now face-to-face with the Father as a continual forgiving redeemer. I think that's just a tremendous thing to see. Um, He is our atoning sacrifice for sins, both for us and for the sins of the whole world. What happened and what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to release forgiveness to every single person. But you have to lay hold of what's been provided. Now, that word redeemer is been translated in the New Testament, both Greek and Aramaic, but it's the word paraclete, which may not mean anything to you, but we're going to look at its importance in a few minutes. But what I want to look at next is I want to look at um, one of the episodes of Jesus in his battle with the Pharisees um, because I want us to be able to connect an actual event with these things we were reading about a continually forgiving Redeemer who's face-to-face, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so I'm turning to John chapter 8, verse 1. So if you would like to... um, Anybody got a Bible up in here? (laughs) Telephone, iPad. I have a smartwatch. Isn't it bad when your watch is smarter than you are? All it used to do was tick. Now it's moving right along. John chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 2. Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again. This is the Passion Translation, by the way. And soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. So he sat down and taught them. Then in the middle of his teaching the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. So that was a very, very traumatic experience for this lady. They said to Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. 
Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? They were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. And so we're going to find this word accuse in this story three different times. And it's important for us to understand that as we see here and as in our life, although we may not realize how this actually affects us, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren or the slanderer. And Satan's chief job, one of his chief jobs, is to accuse people to the point of despair. And so here they were trying to accuse, accuse this woman so uh, of, uh, well, she had actually done this. She had committed adultery. And they were accusing her before Jesus and asking Jesus if he would obey the law and the law of Moses said, when you're caught in adultery, you should be stoned. That's a pretty rough law. Now, Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Uh, a friend of mine, he was a brilliant, brilliant man and preacher. He used to say that hurry is not from the devil. Hurry is the devil. And one of the things you see about Jesus is you couldn't hurry him. Because in his life, he related himself to the Father's purpose, which involved helping mankind, but he related himself to his Father, not to everybody else around him. And so he was a very stubborn man in some ways, but it was a righteous stubbornness. So they could not hurry Jesus. Jesus knelt in the... It says he knelt wrote in the dust with his finger. So angry, they kept insisting that he answer their question. So Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. Genius. Genius, because he didn't say the sin was wrong. But he put her condition in a place where every single person there realized they had their own guilt to deal with. And I think they were ashamed. So he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. Now, what did he write in the dust? Nobody knows. Could they read what he wrote? I don't know. It did remind me of one verse out of... Uh, out of Jeremiah 17.13, and Jeremiah 17.13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Now, written in the earth, that's not a good thing. It's like you're either written in an eternal book or you're written in the dust where the wind could blow your name away and you'd be, you'd be forgotten. But he said, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. And it was obvious that the scribes and the Pharisees' understanding of God 
was, in essence, forsaking God himself because of their harshness, because of their, their criticism. And so Jesus said that to them. They were angry. They were trying to accuse Jesus. And he said, I want to read this again. Let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. And then he bent over, wrote in the dust again. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, with a convicted conscience, it says in the Passion Translation. Until finally, Jesus was left alone with the woman, still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her, Dear woman, where are your accusers? That's the third time that word's been used in this story. Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go and from now on be free from a life of sin. Now, one of the footnotes in the Passion Translation with the verse, I, when she responded, I see no one, Lord, the Aramaic contains a powerful testimony from this woman I'm, I'm reading. Apparently, the woman had the revelation of who Jesus was, for he had, she addressed Jesus with the divine name in Aramaic, which meant Lord Yahweh. That's the name for God. And so what actually happened was she had an experience where she felt the, the forgiveness of God. When we review this story, we realize that the primary mode the Pharisees used to attack Jesus and the mode they used with this woman was accusation. We know they weren't truly interested in redemption. We know they weren't even interested in true justice because it says she was caught in the act. That means the man and the woman were both there. The man was nowhere to be seen. He was not brought forward to. They interrupted Jesus' teaching. They forced their way into that crowd. Then they demanded of Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman in adultery. Moses' law condemns her to death. What do you say we should do? And we find out in verse 6 that what they were doing is they were testing Jesus. They wanted to trap him with his own words. They wanted to accuse him of breaking the law of Moses so that he could be ostracized because they were jealous of Jesus. Jesus threatened them. He had something going on that they did not have. They could not understand who this Jesus really was. He talked. When he talked, he spoke with authority. When he ministered to people, their lives changed. When people listened to him, he released an influence. He was very influential, and they could not understand that. He didn't go to their school. He didn't grow up in their neighborhoods. He was not well-known. Who was this man and how can he have this authority? They were very troubled by Jesus because he threatened their way of life. He threatened their understanding even of the Bible. And so they accused him. They tested him. But Jesus in his wisdom, he refused to give that hasty response. He bent down. He waited until he had real wisdom. 
Let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone. And they all walked out. One of the things that really struck me um, in this story is the trauma that woman had to experience. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the worst day of your life and that was it? You've done something you were probably ashamed of. Who knows why? There are all kinds of reasons people get in the messes they get into. How shameful was that? How humiliating was that for her? Can you picture her standing there stripped of all dignity, being used as some kind of a religious pawn between the Pharisees and Jesus? And yet Jesus would have the perfect answer. And there was something, gosh, we read the Bible and we can't, Sometimes it's like we have to climb inside those words because to say God forgives does not do justice because what we actually see here is a woman whose life was changed in the worst of circumstances because of actually meeting the person of Jesus because of not, not the letters on the page, but the letters on the page that the Spirit has to infuse so that we actually come in contact with this one we worship, with this one we adore, with this one that when his presence is not with us, we long for, we hunger for. That to me has been my experience. And so she didn't run headlong into a Bible. She ran headlong into the one the Bible points to. She, she ran headlong into the one who, although a man, was God. And when she heard what this God-man said to her, her life changed. It changed in a moment. Now, you work those changes out for a long time, I'm sure of that. But the condemnation and the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness of those scribes and Pharisees did nothing for this woman but bring her to, to a terrible situation. But when she met Jesus, the one who answers the accusations with, with wisdom, not just wisdom, but with justice, Where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go, go, and from now on, be free from a life of sin. And that's what Jesus was offering her, a new beginning. So it's, the amazing thing is Jesus doesn't gloss over her condition. He, he doesn't gloss over her condition. He doesn't say, hey, listen, you, you didn't do anything wrong. He says, no, no, you did. So did everyone accusing you. But Jesus' response to the accusers reflects his very nature and mode of life. One of the verses that... Um, has always meant a lot to me. I find in John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. And this idea, this contrast between the law 
of Moses and what Christ Jesus embodied. I've often, I've, I've, I've often thought about this grace and truth in several ways. One thing I've recognized that the law had very little mercy in it. Either you did this or you didn't do it. And if you did, you had certain consequences. But the thing about Jesus is when he came, he came with a different modus operandi. He came with a different, um, if you're talking about computers, operational system. He had, he came with something called not just grace, not just truth, but grace and truth. And the point here that I see is that when we have the truth about our condition, there's also grace that comes with that when we're talking to the Lord Jesus. A friend of mine, Arthur Burt, used to say, grace and truth are married. You can't have one without the other. Some hard-nosed, self-righteous people are all about the truth, and some people who are excusing their lifestyle are all about grace. But in Jesus, you find both of those things. And what he does in his person and by his spirit, he is basically saying, if you will have the truth, I have the grace. And truth is not truth without grace. And grace is not complete without truth. You can't have, you have to have both of them together. And in a sense, when you meet Jesus, you meet one thing, grace and truth. I don't know if you can. That's my mind. That's the way it works. That it's not like two things. It's almost one thing embodied in a person who could look at this woman and absolutely silence all of her accusations without letting her off the hook or utterly condemning her. He had something in operation that was transformative. Now, I want to look at, at this word paraclete. And I'm, some of these, one thing I want to talk about is a little bit complicated. I'm going to try to make it simple, but if you go away confused, you earned it. <laughs> but one, one of the words paraclete, it means, it's the technical word. I'll read this. I've got this uh, from a footnote. It's a technical word that could be translated defense attorney. It means one called to stand next to you as a helper. Various translators have rendered, the, rendered this counselor, comforter, advocate, encourager, intercessor, or helper. However, none of these words alone are adequate and fall short in explaining the full meaning. The translator has chosen to work use the word in one place. He calls it Savior over in the Gospel of John. And in the verse we just read, he calls... He um, calls that word redeemer. And here's the wonderful thing. The embodiment of that word has been applied to the Holy Spirit who is currently with us and in us and to the Lord Jesus himself who's ascended into the heavens and stands face to face with the Father. Both of those Entities, the Holy Ghost and Jesus, have both been described this way as a paraclete, as a counselor, as a comforter, as a savior, as a redeemer. He's the one who guides and defends, comforts, and consoles. Keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, our Savior. The Aramaic word is paraclete, 
which is taken from two root words. One, it means to end, to finish, or to save, and the other, which means the curse. That's the Aramaic meaning of that word. What a beautiful word picture. The Holy Spirit comes to end the work of the curse of sin in our lives and to save us from its every effect. Paracleta means a redeemer who ends the curse. And so I really like that. And that's so important. We have, we have amazing access to the Holy Spirit who is for us and to the risen Jesus who is for us. Turn, turn to somebody and say, they're more for us than against us. Now, accusation is the primary means the devil uses to destroy us and diminish our faith. Revelation 12, 10 and 11 makes this statement. Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So we have this proclamation we find over in the book of Revelation. And the thing I want us to gain from this is this, the accuser of the brethren, the enemy, our enemy, Satan, the devil, he does this. He accuses us how frequently? Day and night. Say day and night. Day and night. All day, all night. You have an enemy who doesn't just accuse you. He accuses you before God. Standing there is your paraclete, is this redeemer. Now, many people have this idea that the devil is trying to convince the father about your behavior, but the son is standing there defending you. But here's the thing I'm beginning to see. Neither the father nor the son is willing to receive those accusations against you. And when we say Jesus is interceding, one of the things I believe he's interceding for is that the people of God could accurately see not only who Jesus himself is, but the heart of the Father. That God, both of them are, are there on your behalf. If you could picture this, let's say there's the Father, there's the Son, let's say there's the devil making accusation, and there you are. If you agree with the devil, there's a tie. But if you agree with the testimony of the Son of God, and if you agree with the God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, then you will begin to enter into a level of freedom you've never known before. Now, this is a little spooky, right? I can't help it. I can't help it. All our solutions aren't natural. Um, I don't care what the solution is as long as I've got one. And having been a Christian since the late 1960s, I have had experience going through pockets, periods, and seasons of turmoil. 
and not understanding why I'm in it, why it's affecting me, and how to get out of it. Have you ever just woke up in your, this sense of dread? Where did that come from? You didn't argue with your wife last night? That was weeks ago. Or some people have this sense of guilt or condemnation. Call it dread, guilt, condemnation. Where does it come from? Here's what I believe. And this is why we need an advocate face-to-face with the Father because we have an accuser that accuses us day and night before the Father. Now, that might not make sense to you. You may not immediately be able to relate to what these verses tell us about our enemy, but I have learned over the years that his accusation, though subtle and maybe even subconscious, can have a profound effect on us. His accusations leave us with a feeling of guilt, with a sense of dread, with a sense of condemnation. I mentioned this earlier. Picture yourself standing with Jesus before the Father. Satan is saying all kinds of accusations about you. But much like the woman caught in adultery, some of those accusations may actually be true. But that is not the point. There's a Bible verse that says, agree with your adversary quickly. You can come into this kind of a situation where in your heart, inwardly you're condemned about something maybe you did, maybe you didn't do. One of the easiest ways out of that condition is to agree. Yes, that's me, but I'm forgiven. But I have access to a new nature. I don't know if you've been through situations like that. I know I have. Now, even even though the accusations against this woman were true, what was the result? Freedom, release. She could lay hold of that very present Redeemer. There he was standing with her. Now, when we listen to our adversary instead of our Savior, our faith withers. We suffer feelings of condemnation, dread, and shame. When we listen to our intercessor, we know our sins have been completely forgiven. Faith arises and we obtain righteousness, peace, and joy. The result of being accused by Satan before God means when we think of God the Father, we don't think of him as loving us or forgiving us, but of being angry with us or disappointed in us or uncaring, ambivalent to us. But we overcome that sense, the Bible says, by the blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony. What does that mean? How could God be against us if, in fact, he sent his only son to suffer and die on our behalf and shed his blood? How could he be against us? Who have we listened to when it comes to our relationship with God the Father? When you think of God, do you have a sense of joy? Do you have a sense of of dread? Do you have a sense of shame? Do you have a sense of disappointment? Or do you have a sense of righteousness, of peace, and of joy? Because that's the Father's heart. That's what he wants released to us. Why would our Father feel in a way that would cause us heartache and shame since he sent Jesus to die for us. 
This Jesus who was willing to absorb and put an end to sin. And the Bible says this, this is so important. And God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Say that phrase, reconciled us to himself. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, what that doesn't say is he's reconciled himself to us. You see, there's the way we have thought about him. It goes on and says, I'll read another verse. It'll make more sense. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God the Father were pleading to the world through us. How can he be pleading for every single person's benefit and somehow be in opposition or angry with us. Both of those things can't be going on. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And it goes on, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'll read this last verse. I say last because I've got a lot more, but we're not going to get to it. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. You who were once alienated and enemies, where? In your mind, by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Where were we enemies? In our mind. We were enemies in our mind by wicked works. Now he has reconciled. It appears that the text indicates that God didn't need to be reconciled to us as much as we needed to be reconciled to him. Our own wicked works had alienated us in our minds when all of that sin, all of that guilt, all that condemnation was put to death, was destroyed, was absorbed, was dealt with through the body of Jesus through his death. It's as though God put all of our sin to death once for all through the death of Jesus. Now, I see our time's up, and my conclusion involves something I haven't talked about yet. (laughs) And so I'm not going to give that conclusion. But here's here's what I am going to say. God really, God the Father really loves you. He really cares. I appreciate so much what what Thomas shared this this morning, just about the forgiveness of God. See, repentance is involved. This grace and truth idea is so real. Although there's this offer of complete and total forgiveness, the way that works out in your life is by taking some sense of responsibility. You don't even have to do it perfectly. Bring whatever that is to the Lord and let him 
release to you grace, cleanse you, and break off of you shame or guilt or condemnation. It's such a terrible thing. God has had such a terrible reputation, and it's not an accurate reputation. Jesus was the express image of the Father. If you want to know what the Father's like, you can see it clearly through the acts and the behavior of Christ Jesus himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have a transformation. We might come into the fullness of all God has for us. To be continued. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.